This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Play ball! It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, we take a look back at one of the beloved teams in baseball history, the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates. They won the World Series 40 years ago this fall. They're known as Willie Stargell's team. The Jolly Slugger was 39 years old, and his influence on that team on and off the field led him to win co-National League MVP honors for the season, along with Keith Hernandez. And I would think it's safe to say that no team in sports is identified with one popular song as much as these Pirates are with the 1979 Sister Sledge disco-era classic We Are Family, which reached number two on the pop charts that summer. No, Yankees fans, there is not a comparison with Empire State of Mind and the 2009 Yankees because We Are Family was chosen by Stargell himself, and even if he didn't know it would take off like it did, it was lyrically the perfect song to describe the Pirates' clubhouse atmosphere, bringing together a diverse group of players and helping bring a title to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh in the 1970s was still a steel town, badly hurt by the nation's economic crisis, but proudly hanging on to its identity, especially in the sports world, with the Steelers ready to capture their fourth Super Bowl championship in six years. The Pirates were one of the winningest teams in the 1970s, but following their World Series title in 1971 was the tragic death of Roberto Clemente a year later. Only a handful of his teammates remained by the time Stargell led the Buccos back to the Fall Classic in 1979. The 79 Pirates were led by Hall of Famer Willie Stargell. They're linked to the Clemente years, and one of the top sluggers in the game, he hit more home runs than any other player in the decade of the 1970s. They also featured the 78 National League MVP, Dave Parker, one of the most feared hitters of the era, Hall of Famer Burt Blylevin, their center fielder and leadoff hitting base dealer, Omar Moreno, and their guest today, relief ace, Kent Tekulvey. The side-arming righty closer, Teak, had a rubber arm appearing in 185 games from 1978-79. With 31 saves in 79, Tekulvey finished 5th in Cy Young voting and 8th in MVP balloting. Tekulvey pitched in over 1,000 Major League games over 16 seasons with the Pirates, Phillies, and Reds. He spent 12 of those 16 years in Pittsburgh and later went on to become a Pirates TV analyst. The only World Series he was ever a part of was with the 79 Pirates. He was on the mound to record the final out of Game 7 as the Pirates beat the Orioles after trailing three games to one. Kent Tecalvi will take us on the journey of the 79 Pirates, managed by Chuck Tanner. They were one of the powerhouse teams of the early 70s, but had been overtaken by Cincinnati's Big Red Machine and the L.A. Dodgers and their cross-state and NL East rival Philadelphia Phillies. Nine games out in the middle of May in 79, the Pirates were still only 37-34, and six and a half games out through the end of June. Then they got hot, swept a five-game series from the Phillies in early August to move into first place. Holding off a late charge from the Montreal Expos, the Pirates won the division by one game, swept the remnants of the Big Red Machine in the best-of-five NLCS, 
And then finally, the seven-game victory over the Orioles in the World Series. Stargell was the MVP of both postseason series. One of the many turning points came, oddly enough, in the middle of a rain delay at Old Three River Stadium. As you will hear Takalvi tell us the story of how the 1979 Pirates became the We Are Family Pirates Forever. It's where we start our conversation with the closer for the 79 World Champion Pirates, Kent Takalvi. How did We Are Family become the song of the 1979 Pirates? Well, you know, it's interesting. It, well, first of all, it was Willie, which, you know, so much of what that team was about was Willie. And this was kind of a perfect example of how Willie very innocently, um, without purpose, comes up with something that, that works. Uh, we Are Family, as you said, I think it was in June, was like the number two song. It was, it was very popular at the time. And when we had rain delays at Three River Stadium, one of two things would happen. We either played This Week in Baseball, the latest edition of This Week in Baseball with Mel Allen on the scoreboard, you know, for the fans to watch or, you know, whatever during the, uh, during the rain delay, or they just played music. And this particular day, we're sitting there in the middle of the rain delay. Can't remember, you know, I don't have any idea what day it was, but it was somewhere around, the, you know, it was in June somewhere. And, um, we Are Family is one of the songs that is played. Not the first, not the last. It's just a song in the middle of this whole rain delay that was played. Uh, in the dugout, there were, there were most of the guys were back in the clubhouse. Actually, I was still sitting in the dugout. Willie was in the dugout. Yeah, just sitting there listening to the music, waiting for the rain to stop so we can go back and start playing the game. This was in the middle of a game. And all the fans are back in the concourse and you know, out of the rain. And We Are Family comes on. And Willie, just being Willie, just, you know, goofing around, we're sitting at the far end of the dugout where the phones are at to call the bullpen and to call the press box. The other the other phone is down at the far end of the dugout where the manager usually stands. So these two phones are there. Willie reaches up, picks up the press box phone, and calls Joe Safety. Joe Safety was our PR guy at the time. And he goes, Joe. Willie, when this song is over, I want you to make an announcement. This is the official Pirate Clubhouse song. Hangs up the phone. <laughs> Just screw it around. You know, he liked the words. He liked the words of what it said. It kind of linked into who we were, how we acted, what we did. Uh, so Joe, who is also a goofball, um, does it. Uh, sure, fine, no problem, Willie. So, you know, after the song's over with, We Are Family is now the official Pirate Clubhouse song. Innocently done. Just happens to coincide with a point where we had been, as we usually did, kind of muddling along early in the year. We were not a fast-starting team. We had a lot of guys with thick bodies, a lot of thick-bodied guys. It just, you know, cold weather wasn't good for us. Mm. Those thick bodies don't loosen up very well <laughs> in cold weather. And it was just starting to get warm. Yeah. And, you know, the old saying in the clubhouse was, you know, when the weather heats up, we'll sow the buckets. Mm-hmm. Well, we were about at that point in time. We went on a we went on a run. So all of a sudden, somebody kept up this relationship of we are family and the pirate clubhouse song. Still, still not officially involved with anything. Just for some reason, it was Willie had said it, so it kind of stuck in somebody's mind. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, we're playing better. We're playing better. I think we were like in third place and, you know, six games out or something like that at the time. 
and all of a sudden we'll play better, and all of a sudden we climb and we climb, and eventually we go into first place. As this builds, and it's probably really kind of takes over around the time that we had the back-to-back weekends where uh, John Helmer hit the pinch hit home run, Grand yeah. Slam to beat the Phillies in Pittsburgh, and then the following weekend, uh, Ed Ott hits a Grand Slam home run, both of them off Tuck McGraw, yep. come back, beat the Phillies, and you know, all of a sudden, that's, that's kind of when you start getting the feeling, hey, something special is going on here, because we got some strange stuff going on. It was shortly after that period of time where somehow or another, we are a family, somebody made the decision that we are a family was going to replace, take me out to the ball game at the seventh inning stretch. And we continued to play well, and it just grew from there. And, you know, it became the anthem of the Pittsburgh Pirates from that point on. But it was just kind of a, an innocent thing that Willie did during a rain delay, just screwing around, that turned out to be pure genius because the words did kind of link us into the song. And, the, you know, we, you know, we took off after that. The timing was just perfect. All Everything kind of fit together. As it turns out, the, the last irony of the whole thing is, Number one, you know, the Phillies had won the division the three previous years. Mm-hmm. We had won in 75, they had won in 76, 77, and 78 with a real good team. Well, Sister Sledge are three girls from Philadelphia. <laughs> in, our own, in our own clubhouse, in the quiet where nobody's around, where nobody's going to hear this, we're going, eh, not only are we going to kick their ass, we're going to take their women too. And, you know, this, <laughs> That that was that was a that was a typical pirate clubhouse way something would be handled. You know the the baseball clubhouse is a weird place because it's a smallish group, twenty five people, and the the diversity of the backgrounds is uh, is pretty significant. So how unusual? Especially in ours, we jokingly used to call ourselves the United the United Nations of baseball. <laughs> so we had one of everything, and the white guys were in the minority. So how surprised were you that one song from that disco era can can unite a group of players like that too? Was everybody into it? Were there some guys kind of like, you know, scoffing at, at, at the song or sick of the song? Or was everybody kind of on board with the whole idea no, of it? Everybody kind of jumped on board. But that was, that was really kind of who we were. And 79, obviously, with the song, with the fact that we won, um... You know, all of that pulled together. But, the, you know, what the song says, that had been in place for, shoot, ever since I came up to the ball club in 75. Mm-hmm. That was the pirate organization at that point in time. We were diverse. We were always a very close-knit group. You know, the blacks didn't hang out together. The Latins didn't hang out together. The white guys didn't hang out together. We were all mixed together, and it had always been that way. And, uh, you know, this was just, this was actually more of a revelation publicly than it was privately in the clubhouse. We weren't any different after the song came along than before the song. It was just that there was more attention paid to the fact that, yes, we were diverse, but yes, we were also very close as individuals and as a team. It kind of it gave a, a credo to what we already all knew we were. 
You had mentioned that the Phillies had won three straight division titles, 76, 77, and 78. Uh, the Reds had had their run in the mid-70s. The Dodgers were, were, uh, had won a couple of pennants in 77 and 78. When you signed with the Pirates organization, we're coming up through the organization in the early 70s, they win the World Series in 71, they lose a few LCSs, and then they... Then they finished second to the Phillies all these years. Was there some sort of a sense that with some of the players getting older, like Willie Stargell, uh, and free agency was starting to was going to uh, make an imprint soon? Was there some sense that you know the Pirates' run was maybe coming to an end, or you were over, you, you were underachieving a little bit? Was was there any sense of that in '79? I don't think so. I think you know what what we realized was. Basically, what had happened was the Philadelphia team had come up with a whole bunch of good players. When they made their run, they were they kind of made their run the way we had made the run, which was still you know, homegrown player. So, you know, we it's not like we played bad. They played really good. Prior to that time, there really wasn't a team that you could count on you know, that had the kind of talent that would, could challenge us year after year after year. And all of a sudden, here comes this Philly group. Doesn't hurt anything that, you know, we're in the same state. Doesn't hurt anything that we're in the same division. It was just, uh, we, we were challenged. And what set up 79, what our, our whole focus going into 1979 was what had happened in 1978. In the middle of August, we were like 12 or 13 games back and we made a run and we actually took them to the last weekend of the series. They beat us by a game uh, in 78. And our whole mindset going into 79 was, let's not let them get that far out in front because we know we can play with them later in the summer. Our typical slow start you know, is, is what put us so far behind. There really wasn't much thought about the fact that you know we were getting older. But I guess as players, you really don't think about that. You may think about it if you're in, you know, if you're in a city with a team that is not playing well, hasn't played well the past couple of years, you know, this may be time where you need to roll this team over and start, you know, rebuilding it. Uh, that hadn't happened really in Pittsburgh. I mean, we had played well in the three previous years. We had just been beaten by a better team, you know, in the Phillies. As it turns out, the two turning points in 79, it was the back-to-back weekends with the back-to-back Grand Slam home runs off of Sutton McGraw, one in Pittsburgh, one in Philadelphia, both on the game of the week. So it kind of gave us the feeling, okay, this year is going to be different. You mentioned Willie Stargell and his leadership. That starts from the idea that he was a tremendous hitter. What was he like as a guy who was coming up to the plate four times a night and had the ability to hit the ball out of the ballpark? His uh, presence at the plate and his leadership style. First of all, you got to remember, I think Willie only played like 108, 112 games that year. Mm-hmm. He was hurt quite a bit, even though he you know, ended up winning the co-MVP with uh, Keith Hernandez. We were a much better team when Willie, Willie was in the lineup than when he was out. So, you know, but he was Willie. And he changed the way everybody else, you know, had to play the game because he was in the lineup playing. You know, he was the guy that we looked to, number one, to be the guy in the big spot to come through, which he did continually throughout the course of the year, and particularly, you know, the last month and a half or so of the regular season plus the postseason. 
24 guys in the clubhouse looked at, almost being jealous that, God, I wish I could be that guy. <laughs> because he's that good. And, you know, I want to, I want to, I, I know I can't be him, but I want to be as close to him as I can be. Because he is really good. And so, I mean, you know, that's, and, you know, that wasn't only our perception of it. That was the opponent's perception of it. Mm-hmm. So our team was totally different on days when he was in the lineup as opposed to when we were out. Now, the fact that he missed, you know, 50 games that year or whatever it was um, over the course of the year speaks so much to the jobs that Bill Robinson and John Milner in particular did. Mm-hmm. Originally, when we came out of spring training, they were supposed to be our left field platoon. Well, all of a sudden, Willie started missing games. So, you know, what they did compared to what they were expected to do in at the beginning of the year and the fact that it was, you know, they were playing left on left, right on right, uh, really stood out as far as, you know, it had so much to do with the success that we had in the 50 games that Willie wasn't in the lineup. And for a while, Bill Robinson, you know, he'd come in every once in a while, play third base, probably more early in the year. Uh, you know, Stennett was playing second, Garner was playing third, and either Garner would need a break or somebody get dinged for a couple days or whatever. Stennett would be out, and Garner would have to go play second, so Robinson would come in to play third because we didn't have that lock yet. Yeah. So those two guys and their ability to play much more than they were expected to play, plus playing in situations that they weren't supposed to be in. We win, the, we win that division eventually from the Expos by one game. If everybody doesn't step up to fill the spot, the void that is created when Willie is missing, you know, we don't get there either. So as much as what Willie did when he was in the lineup, is also that worked in combination with what all these other guys did when he wasn't in the lineup. What about Dave Parker? I mean, he's a guy who could very well be in the Hall of Fame, and he's not. So I think we have a tendency to forget 77, 78, 79, what kind of a powerful force he was in a lineup. Every time you hear something negative about Dave Parker, it's usually not about how he played the game. It's about something else that happened around it. You know, obviously being involved in the uh, the drug scandal. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of other things. The way he treated the reporters, the way he treated the fans. You know, that's when you hear the negative things about Dave Parker. When you when you ask somebody, anybody who was around at the time or played against him, how he was out on the field. You'll never hear a complaint about, you know, well, he didn't run balls out. Uh, he didn't do this. He didn't do that. And he's the kind of guy, because of the personality, because of the other stuff, you know, people were looking for things like that to, uh, to be able to get on him about. So what we've got, and he didn't miss many games. This guy, yeah. you know, in spite of injuries and everything else, he played almost every day and played at an extremely high level. It wasn't, it wasn't winning batting titles like he did in 77, 78. But nonetheless, he, you know, he was still a big, big part of what was going on. He was the three-hole hitter. He was the guy right in the middle of the top of the lineup 
that had Omar, who was leading off and getting on base and running around, he was driving him. And uh, so, yeah, Dave Parker, the player, the guy playing the game for nine innings every night on the field, was as good a player as there was in the league, including Sturgill, including all the other great players in the league. Dave was right amongst them as far as, you know, playing the game and the, the ability to do everything in the game. Run, throw, hit, hit for power. People didn't get to see what he had to go through to play a lot of times. He wasn't going to say anything about it, and they were too busy worrying about all the other stuff. <laughs> that, that would have been something they had to give him credit for, is working through and playing, you know, what when he did and how he did. But, you know, at 7.30 on a Tuesday night, you were damn glad that Dave Parker was playing right field for you. He was, I mean, he was a difference maker. And he played the game hard. He played the game, you know, he did everything that he could. Now, you know, once the game's over, if he might come to you in the clubhouse yelling and screaming and giving you a hard time about something. <laughs> but that was a different guy. Yeah. The guy that was playing from 7.30 until 10 o'clock or however long it was, was the guy you wanted in your foxhole because he was as good as there was at that time in the game of baseball. Teak, there were two trades made in season that made a huge difference for this team. The first one came in April. Unusual time for a trade, and it was a very unusual trade, actually. The Pirates sent Frank Tavares, the starting shortstop for the last five years, and one of the top base stealers in the league. He was sent to the Mets for Tim Foley. It was a starting shortstop for starting shortstop trade. Why was this one made, and why was Foley a better fit for that team than Tavares was? Timmy was a better fit for us for a couple of reasons. You know, the things that, that Frankie brought to the table, you know, he was a guy that could run and steal bases. That was part of his part of his package that we were giving up in this trade. Um, he was also the kind of shortstop that, you know, could make the spectacular play much more, you know, than Tim Foley would. He could make some really outlandish-looking plays look easy. And Foley... You are getting a guy who made the routine play every single time. And you got a guy who was a contact type hitter, wasn't the kind of guy who you're going to put in your lineup and he's going to make a, a winner out of a loser. Timmy was not a good player on a bad team. He couldn't help a bad team win, but he could do an awful lot to help a good team win. He hit second behind Omar. He, he would stand there forever and take strike after strike after strike, you know, in at bats over the course of time. He would take a whole ton of strikes waiting for Omar to get a chance to run because Omar, Omar was on his own and Omar pretty much ran when he, you know, when he got the jump, he was running. Well, Foley would stand there and be an 0-2 count or a 1-2 count constantly. You got two things with Tim Foley that you lost with uh, Frank Tavares. You got a guy that made the routine play every single time, and you got a type of a hitter that was patient enough to make Omar Marino the weapon that he was at the top of the order because he got more pitches and more chances to do what he did best, which was run. You made Omar a better player. You gave more opportunities to Dave and Willie and Bill Robinson and Doc Miller to drive in runs 
with with Foley hitting second as opposed to Tavares hitting second. Frankie was a great shortstop, but he just didn't. It, what he did didn't fit as well as what Foley did for our team. The other big trade came in late June, acquiring Bill Madlock from the Giants. He came to you having already won a couple of batting titles with the Cubs in the mid-70s. He was having a subpar first half in San Francisco. What did his addition do for your team? We became a much better team. Again, we'd already done it once early when we got Foley. We did it again when we got Madlock. Number one, having Bill Madlock to play third allowed Phil Garner to move over to second. And he was a much better second baseman than he was a third baseman. Um, Madlock also, as you mentioned, you know, he's sitting sixth on a team and he's got a couple batting titles in his pocket already when he comes over. Yeah. And, uh, you know, batting title guys usually don't hit six. He never got upset about that because of the fact, and it was a combination of two guys who was Willie and it was, uh, and Chuck when he, when, uh, when he first came over, he had never played on a really good team. And, uh, this was his first experience playing on a, a team that was really good, had a lot of expectation. His job was number one to come in sixth and hit behind Parker, Stargell, or Milner, or Robinson. He's going to hit behind it. So he's going to clean up everything that those guys don't clean up. He's also going to hit sixth, and he, you know, because he wins batting titles, he's going to be on base quite a bit himself. The first thing that Chuck told him when he came over is, I want you to, you're going to be, you're going to have a green light, and I want you to run as often as you can run. Hmm. When, you know, he almost put him in the same program that Omar is on. If you can get a jump, I want you to run. Number one, Bill liked that because he was typically in a situation where he was both about to run mm-hmm. because he was hitting third with the power guys behind him. He had the power guys in front of him. He had um, Otten Akosha, the platoon, hitting behind him, and then Garner hitting behind that. Well, the result of the fact that when he starts running, all of a sudden Otten Akosha started getting a hell of a lot more fastballs, mm. and they were both fastball hitters. And if you look at the numbers for both of those guys, their hitting numbers in 1979 were far and away the best years that they ever had as a hitter because they got so many more fastballs to hit. And Garner had a much better year because more often than not, Madlock, when he was on, eventually was on second base. Or if he was still on first, he was the threat to steal, and they were getting more fastballs. That was the piece that kind of fueled the back end of the season. All of a sudden now, we're hitting from the top of the order to the bottom of the order. We get to the World Series and Garner ends up leading the team and hit. So, uh, you know, that's, that's what really put us on the track to, to carry us through the second half of the season and play as well as we had to play to beat out Montreal to, um, to, to win the division. So you beat the Expos by one game and clinched the NL East on the final day of the regular season. The NLCS was a best of five then, and you faced the Reds. This wasn't really the big red machine of the mid-70s. They had lost some key pieces from the teams that had beaten you and everybody else in the uh, earlier playoff series. But you still took them out in a three-game sweep. Yeah, you're right. The big, the big red machine wasn't quite what the big red machine was before. They had lost some of their pieces. Pete was in Philadelphia. 
Uh, I believe Perez by then was in Montreal. Yep. But but they were still good. And they had Tom Seaver now that they didn't have before who pitched game one. So they were they were a, good, a very good ball club. And yes, we swept them in the in the um, playoffs. The first two games are extra innings. Yeah, so we're not pounding the big red machine. <laughs> and I didn't save either one of those games. Mm-hmm. I ended up pitching in the you know the seventh and sixth and seventh innings of some of those games because that's when the middle of the lineup was coming up. We need to make pitching change. Chuck had already told me mm-hmm. before we ever started. I'm not going to use you like I normally use you during the regular season. I'm going to use you. The first time that we get into a situation where we're in the jam and their best sitters are coming up, and I don't care where it is, hmm. you know, it could be the sixth inning or the seventh inning, doesn't matter. That's why I'm going to use you because if they score, then there may not be anything else left for you to save at the end. That was just Chuck kind of having an idea of, hey, this is best of five. Mm-hmm. We got to win three games. I can't afford to give a game away. That's a pretty progressive use of the bullpen for 1979, and it worked for you in the NLCS, obviously. But let's move ahead now to the World Series. The Orioles jumped out to a three-games-to-one lead. Baltimore scored 17 runs in games three and four combined. So you're heading into game five. Only three teams in World Series history to that point had come back from a three-games-to-one deficit and won the series. And before game five, Chuck Tanner, your manager, his mother passed away. What was happening inside your clubhouse, and how did you turn things around? We uh, we didn't play as well as we could the first four games of that World Series. Uh, we weren't hitting at all, and we weren't scoring the kind of runs that we normally scored. And we really weren't pitching as well as uh, we had pitched all year long. So we fall into this three-to-one hole. I am very grateful that people forget things over time. Because when you look at that three-to-one hole that we were in, I blew a three-run lead in the eighth inning, the fourth game, to put them up three-to-one. I didn't exactly star in that game and do what I was supposed to do, and we ended up in this three-to-one hole. Fortunately for me, we come back and we win the next three games, and I save six and seven, and everybody forgets about four, and I'm <laughs> the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, the last four guys in the clubhouse, after we went lose on Saturday night and we're down three to one, are myself, Willie, Parker, and Garner, and we're just sitting around talking about you know being down three games to one. You know, Willie, he always claimed that a lot of what he had and a lot of what he was teaching us came from Roberto. That he learned how to do how to handle situations from Roberto, and this really wasn't his original stuff. He was just passing on. Hmm what Clemente had taught him mm-hmm. when, uh, you know, Clemente was the guy that was the leader of the club. But we're sitting there talking, and he goes, you know what, we may lose this series. I mean, 3-1 is not where we want to be. We may lose this whole damn thing, but we haven't yet played like the Pittsburgh Pirates or, you know, play. We haven't hit. Uh, our pitching hasn't been as good as it, as it normally is. He said, if we're going to lose this thing, and we might, before we do, let's play one game so that the whole world gets to see how the Pittsburgh Pirates really play baseball. And that was kind of what we went home with that night. Then as we're coming in on Sunday morning, 
and I'm assuming everybody else was in the same boat I was, when I was driving into the ballpark on Sunday morning was then when I had heard about Chuck's mother passing away the night before. We're all sitting in the clubhouse. It's the quietest that clubhouse had ever been. I mean, and it wasn't because we were down three to one and I had gone with three run lead the last, the night before. It was because none of us knew what to say to Chuck. You know, he was so much a part of what we were and who we were. And his mother had just passed away the night before. As we find out when we get there, you know, he's going to be there and he's going to manage his team, even though his mother passed away the night before. And we were all sitting in the clubhouse. We're sitting there as quiet as can be, which has never happened in the clubhouse. No music, no nothing, no talking. And Chuck's sitting back in his office by himself. And I don't know if anybody had gone in, had talked to him at all. Well, it's about, I'm going to guess, 20 minutes or so before batting practice is going to start. We're all sitting in the lockers, and Chuck walks out of his office and walks into the center of the room and looks around at all of us and says, you know, guys, my mom was a huge pirate fan. This is not not easy for me to repeat. Um, you know, my mom is a huge pirate fan and she knew we were in trouble. So she went to, um, to get us some help. And he turned and he walked back, um, out of the room, back into his office. It basically took all of that that all of us were worried about off of our, off of our shoulders. He lifted all of that off our shoulders. So now we can go ahead and just go ahead and continue, you know, think about playing game five, you know, being down three games to one. The second thing that happened, which wasn't nearly as impactful as that was, is for some reason, I don't know, who brought it in? I don't know where it came from. There's a copy of the Baltimore Sun, the Sunday Baltimore Sun in our clubhouse. It's sitting on the table in the middle of the clubhouse. And on the front page of the Baltimore Sun is an article basically where somebody has, you know, talked to the mayor of Baltimore and the parade route for the, the victory parade was on the front page of the Baltimore Sun. Baltimore wins today. On Tuesday, there's going to be a parade downtown. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. It's going to start here. It's going to end there. And you know, the mayor of Baltimore is explaining to whoever wrote the article all that's going to happen. Well, we decide, you know, it's not, it's not even without conversation. You could just tell looking around the rooms, we were going to cancel the parade. <laughs> there was no doubt about it. We were going to cancel a parade <laughs> because that pissed us off. That that was just the uh, the uniqueness of that ball club. You didn't have to. You didn't have to look at each other. You didn't have to say anything. 
You just knew that that parade was not going to happen. We may lose. But by God, there wasn't going to be a parade on Tuesday. There was going to be a ball. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of what took us into game five. We're down three games to one. Our manager just lost his mother. We haven't played up to our potential yet. And we got Jim Rooker pitching for us, who's been disabled about three times during the season. This is not where you should be at your most optimistic. I think it's Rooker, but, you know, he had missed so many starts during the course of the year. And he, um, he's what we got. And Rooker pitches four innings in that ball game and ends up leaving the game, trailing one to nothing. Pitches his ass off. At some point in time, Bert Blylip, who will eventually become a Hall of Famer, had told Chuck that I know I'm scheduled to start game six, but if you need me in game five to get game six, I'll pitch out of the bullpen. He pitches five shutout innings behind Rooker's four one-run innings. The offense finally comes to life. We start scoring runs. You know, the way we could score runs in bunches. And we end up beating them seven to one in that ball game. So now we go back off day on Monday. Candelaria's pitching against Palmer in Baltimore game six. He goes out six innings, nothing to nothing against Jim Palmer. We're not scoring, but this time it's really because Jim Palmer's pitching and you know, he's pretty damn good. We end up scoring two runs in the, I believe, in the top of the seventh. We scored two runs. I came in. I ended up pitching three shutout innings. Now we're going to game seven after winning four to nothing in game six. Game seven, we go out second inning. Rich Dower hits a home run off of Bibby. Uh, they're up one to nothing. Willie hits the home run in the sixth inning, the two-run homer that puts us up two to one. You know, by the time I'm in the game in the eighth inning, we get into that basis order two out situation with uh, Eddie Murray hitting and the entire World Series on the line, able to get him out. And then we end up scoring a couple more runs in the top of the ninth. I got a three run lead to work with. I basically all I've got to do is be able to hold it together and get the ball over the plate for the last three outs. I strike up the first two and then the last guy, Pat Kelly, flies out the center field. And, you know, the comeback is complete. But for the team to be able to do what it did, being in the situation and the position that they were in, you know, just speaks volumes about the people that were on that team. I want to ask you one more about the city of Pittsburgh to kind of put this in perspective of what it meant, because in the 1970s, some tough economic times and a working class city like Pittsburgh, the Steel City, had seen its share of suffering. In fact, the Pirates' attendance in 1978, the year before, was under a million for the first time in the decade. So you get to 79. What what kind of sense did you get that it meant to the people of the city then and how it still resonates now? Western Pennsylvania, and particularly Pittsburgh, you know, the city of Pittsburgh, was in the worst of worst times. The steel industry had completely collapsed. I mean, you know, you know I mean, there were generations that had worked in the mills. That's all they, that's what they knew. Their dad had worked in the mills. They were working in the mills. Their grandfather had worked in the mills. This whole city ran on the steel and steel industry. It wasn't 
quite what it used to be, say, back in 1960, where, I mean, this, although the image was still there, this big black cloud, you know, from the, from the steel mills just hanging over the city all the time. Hmm. It wasn't quite that. That part of it was gone. But, you know, what had happened was, you know, the whole economy, everything had collapsed. We win the World Series in 1979 in the middle of the Steelers in January of 79 winning the Super Bowl. And again in 1980, they win the Super Bowl again. So we have won Super Bowl, World Series, Super Bowl for a bunch of fans and didn't, didn't think about this at all at the time when it happened. It had nothing to do with why we won. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the only World Series I was ever in. You know, as far as I was concerned, it was 25 Pirates against 25 Orioles. That was what I was focused on because I didn't know it better. Yeah. I didn't know. Willie, Willie had a better idea because he had been through 71. But in 79, with the Steelers winning, us winning, and then the Steelers winning, first our part of winning, going into the cold winter, cold months of the year, and on the heels of the, the Steelers that won the Super Bowl the year before, it gave these people who really didn't have much at all to be proud of. There was nothing going right in their lives. Their jobs were gone. The economy, the city was, you know, didn't just, uh, was just a mess. And, uh, it wasn't going to get any better for a while. It gave those people something to be proud of, something to think about to at least while they're watching a game for three hours to get away from how bad everything is, to feel good about their baseball team, to feel good about their football team. And we provided a stretch in there at probably the worst time in the history of Pittsburgh. And again, it had nothing to do with us doing it on purpose. It just was time. It was just that it happened when it did. Those people had an opportunity for a couple hours to feel proud about where they were, feel happy about where they were, feel proud about their teams, feel good about what was going on in a, in a time when there really wasn't anything else to, to feel good about. The celebration that we had down in Market Square Mm-hmm. Uh, after we had won the World Series. And a couple couple different people spoke. Not everybody spoke. But, again, it was Willie. It's one of those things Willie just had, uh, had a knack of doing. Now, this is after we win on Wednesday, fly home Wednesday night, go up to Newcastle on Thursday, bury Chuck's mother, oh. and then come back on Friday for our, our uh, parade and celebration downtown. So oh. this... This is where we're at. But Willie, during his comments, makes the statement, and I believe the words were something along the fact that you could be proud that you come from a city of nothing but champions. And to this day, 40 years later, when people refer to the, you know, to the city of Pittsburgh, and I'm talking about a lot of sports commentators, a lot of national sports commentators, they still refer to Pittsburgh as the city of champions. And when you think back and think that you were just a small part of being able to provide to those people at that time something that 40 years later is still going to be 
you know, what Pittsburgh is remembered for, what Pittsburgh is thought about. You know, it's almost overwhelming. For me, that's something really, the kind of every time I think about it, I just smile. And I'm not smiling as much because, you know, we were able to win the World Series or the Steelers were able to win the, uh, the Super Bowls on both sides of it. Most, the biggest reason why I'm, why I'm smiling is the people that were suffering so much throughout that time. And, you know, the, that phrase, that period of time, those, those three seasons, the two football seasons and the baseball season, changed people's perception of who they were and, you know, what they were going through. I'm out there with 24 of my friends playing a really fun game that we happen to be pretty good at, not having the slightest idea how many millions of people the results of those games that we were playing, how much it's affecting the lives of that many people. Didn't ever realize that then, but absolutely realize it every time now that I hear the phrase, City of Champions. I've got just one more for you, Teak. Do you still like to hear the song? We Are Family? Yeah. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, it, it reminds you of the great times. It reminds you of uh, you know, the, the World Series, the, the excitement and everything else around it. But I've had a couple of moments. And one of them was almost right after the World Series was over with. I had already agreed before we, and this was maybe in September where we didn't even know we were still the other, if we were even going to go to the postseason. I had agreed to go to a J.C. Penny store out in Irwin, PA and sign autographs for two hours. They were just, you know, they were doing a promotion or whatever and I had signed, I had signed up for this deal and it's like, ends up coming up. It's probably close to the first of November so it's, it's a couple of weeks after we win the World Series. Now, I'm in a J.C. Penney store sitting at a table with people lined up all the way out the front door. Everybody, anyone in 50 miles seems like it's there. And I'm sitting at this table, and there's another, this is like a long, one of those fold-up tables. And there's another one just the same size behind me with one of those, I don't know, $100 J.C. Penney record players <laughs> sitting behind me with the speakers that are about three foot high and they weren't the highest of quality speakers for two hours with 145 playing over and over and over again of we are family <laughs> on that thing cranked all the way up just think about having a set of headphones on cranking <laughs> them all the way up for two hours and listen to the same song over and over and over again. That kind of dulled a little bit on the song. But, uh, you know, I don't know if hearing the song makes me that happy anymore. What I do know is hearing the song in a place where there's a bunch of people and looking around and, uh, you know, seeing nothing but smiles and people looking back at you like, yeah, you are a part of that. That's good. The stereo for two hours, 
My thanks to Kent Tecalvi, some wonderful memories from him about one of the first World Series that I remember following very closely. I remember bits and pieces of the 77 and 78 Yankees-Dodgers series, but in 1979, I was nine years old and fully immersed in baseball. And where I grew up in south-central Pennsylvania, it was a short drive from both Baltimore and Pittsburgh, so there was a lot of local interest in that series. A lot of Steeler fans in the area, too, so as Teak recalls, there was certainly a lot of pride in the area for the Pittsburgh sports teams. And even as the Steelers won more Super Bowls later and the Penguins won a few Stanley Cups, that same energy hasn't been felt since the late 70s for all the reasons that DeColvey mentioned. And, of course, the Pirates, despite a good run with Barry Bonds and company in the early 1990s, still haven't been to the World Series in the last 40 years. If you're new here and like what you hear, please check out the 30 with Murdy archive at radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and review. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.